Does anyone know what tomorrow is besides Monday or besides October 31st? If you said Halloween, shame on you. We'll pray for you. I'm just kidding. Tomorrow is Reformation Day. On October 31st, 1517, over 500 years ago, there was a German monk by the name of Martin Luther, and he nailed up a document onto the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And he wasn't doing anything illegal there. That was like a bulletin board of, hey, this is some things I think the community needs to know about. We need to talk about these things. His document was called the 95 Theses. What he was doing is calling for some conversation to be had, some debate to be had, some argumentation to be engaged in over some disagreements with what the Roman Catholic Church was teaching at several points, 95 of them to be exact, hence the name 95 Theses. And before long, that document just became the talk of the entire continent of Europe. And just to make a long story short, there were many men and women who saw these problems doctrinally with Rome, and that sparked an entire movement that we now call, they didn't call it this, they didn't know exactly what was going on. It's always in history, you look back and you say, oh wow, and you call that something. And we call that the Protestant Reformation. We're Protestants today. And so today, as a, uh, as a nod, if you will, to Reformation Day and its massive impact, even on our church here in Jackson, South Carolina, over 500 years later, and really due to its impact over the entire globe, we're going to look at one of the central doctrines of the Christian faith that was clarified and recovered, really, during the time of the Reformation. The doctrine, as you see on the screen there, the doctrine is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. That's absolutely, as you'll see, I hope, absolutely vital to the central message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Latin phrase, you might hear it said, sola fide, F-I-D-E. Sola, S-O-L-A, F-I-D-E, sola fide, Latin phrase means faith alone is how we're justified. Now, just before we get into it this morning, let me give you some heads up for some future sermons. You know, as most of you know, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, and uh, that, that's a longer series, obviously. Mark has 16 chapters. We're right in the middle of chapter 3. But from time to time, we're going to take periodic breaks, and we'll break from that longer series for a short time, and we'll hit on this theme that I want to just call, Why We Believe. Today, obviously, we're talking about why we believe that particular doctrine, justification by faith alone, but there's many other areas that we could hit on to to help ourselves, to shore up our faith. Um, and have more confidence in the faith. 
Did you know, by the way, that God commands, God commands every single Christian to be a defender of the faith. The term for it is we are called to be apologists. Have you heard that term? An apologist? An apologist is not a person who goes around making apologies. I know it sounds like that. Apologist comes from the Greek term apologia, which means a defense. So an apologist is somebody who makes a defense of something. A Christian apologist will be someone who defends the Christian faith. And if any of us are tempted to think that defending the faith is supposed to be left to the full-time ministry guys, the pastors and the Bible teachers or the 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 Sunday school teachers or the professional debaters, uh, the seminarians, leave it to the other Christians who are more gifted in that area. If we're tempted to uh, think that way, we are mistaken. The call to defend the faith goes out to every believer. Listen to it from 1 Peter 3.15. It says... But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. That's step one, by the way, to defending your faith. Step one, Christ and his word have got to be the standard for everything. Honor him as holy. And then it says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. You and I have to be prepared. Prepared for what? To defend the faith and to give solid reasons for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. So the question is this in this series that we'll do. Do you know why you believe what you believe? Can you defend it to others who ask you about Christianity? Can you give authoritative answers from a higher standard than your own opinions? We don't ever want to defend the faith with, you know, flimsy opinionated answers like, well, I, you know, I just feel in my heart this is the right way to believe or this is the way I was taught or something along those lines. If we are ambassadors for Jesus Christ and if we're called to, to, uh, to call other people to repentance and faith in Christ and we are to tell them, be reconciled to God. 2 Corinthians 5 states that. If we're called to do that and the unbeliever says, what do you mean? Could you explain the gospel to that person? Could you explain not only the gospel, but can you explain your worldview? Why do you view the world like you do? Could you give them a solid scriptural defense? In my experience, I don't know about yours, this might just be anecdotal in my experience, but there are lots of Christians who have been taught good solid doctrine, but they really don't know why they believe it. They couldn't defend it, in other words, from the Bible. 
I'm not saying that's us here. Maybe that is some of us here. I'm just saying in general, in my experience, and perhaps that's why people shy away from evangelism because they don't know how to defend the assertions that they're making. If someone asks you some questions about this doctrine or that doctrine, could you defend it? If they came to you and said, you know, I heard some Christians the other day saying this or that. And they say, is that what you believe? Is that what the Bible teaches or or where do Christians get that from? Questions like that. That is the type of thing I want us to try to help us to be prepared for. So we'll just... When we periodically return to this series, why we believe, we will just try to become better apologists and better ambassadors for Christ. And I hope that is interesting to you. I hope that excites you. I hope that's encouraging to you. So the first place we're going today, as you see there, is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And some people might say, well, that's pretty basic, isn't it? I mean, doesn't everybody kind of know and believe that? The fact is, no. Everyone doesn't believe that. Everyone doesn't know that. Christians get confused here. Unbelievers certainly get confused here. What exactly does the Bible teach about this? That's where we're going. And I hope uh, as we study this today, I hope it'll stir your heart um, for your own walk with God. But I also hope that you'll be paying attention enough to equip yourself to defend this doctrine to others. And by the way, I'm not saying by any means that I am the premier person to learn this from. Don't memorize anything that I say, some catchphrases or It's not about memorizing a script. If somebody asks me this, well, I'm going to memorize this whole little paragraph and I'm going to say this to them. That's not going to work. That's not going to work. Instead, I just want you to pay close attention to the text of Scripture. That's where the answers are found. So that you can understand what it's teaching well enough to take others there and say, your your Bible's here. Let me show you. Right here, let's look at this together. And you're able to defend the doctrine from the scriptures. Okay? So, let's get into this doctrine of justification by faith alone. Martin Luther, the the guy whose hymn we just sang a while ago, A Mighty Fortress, he called this doctrine the article for the standing or falling of the church. That important. The church stands or falls on this doctrine. And I think the best place in Scripture for us to go to see this clearly taught, you see it there in the corner of the slide, it's the book of Romans. So go ahead and open your Bible up to the book of Romans, and we'll start in the first chapter. And we'll kind of do this uh, flyover exposition, if you will, of the first few chapters of Romans Just, again, to prepare ourselves to be able to defend the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Are you there in Romans 1? Okay. After 
Paul's, I'm going to summarize some of this, by the way, and then we're going to read portions of it as well. So just bear with me and come along for the ride, okay? Uh, After Paul's greeting in verses 1 to 7, he tells the Roman believers that he's praying for them constantly. He longs to come see them in person, but thus far he has been prevented from doing so. He'd often planned to do it, but thus far had been prevented. And then Follow along with me, beginning in verse 16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, or we might say beginning and ending with faith, That's what that phrase means. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul had confidence in the gospel to save people. And he had confidence that it would save, that the God of the gospel would save all kinds of people. Jews and Gentiles. In other words, the gospel of Christ is powerful enough to save anyone who believes. And the first thing he sets out to do is what any good uh, gospel preacher, gospel witnesser, any good Christian needs to do to lay the foundation for salvation. Why do you even need saving? This is what he does. He sets out to prove that there is actually a universal need universal need for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So for the rest of chapter 1, he shows us what fallen man looks like. And here's what fallen man does. It says, even though they know the truth, they suppress it. Verse 18. They suppress it. That's, by the way, been... Every single one of us. Either we were suppressing the truth and God opened our eyes and our heart. Or even right now we're suppressing the truth. And the passage talks about people go even as far as to believe that God doesn't even exist. There's such a thing in our world as so-called atheism, right? But here's the thing. God, God doesn't believe in atheists. I saw a good shirt the other day that said, I'm an a-atheist. You know, the a at the beginning negates the word. So theism, theist is God, one who believes in God. The a right before it is a negation of that so no God the shirt said I'm an a atheist I don't believe in atheists is what it was saying and that's actually biblical because verses 19 and 20 of Romans chapter 1 say that what can be known about God is plain to people it is plain it's been clearly Perceived in the things that have been made. Let me read it for us. Verses 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, 
namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile, futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And then the rest of the chapter shows this twisted descent down the toilet bowl, if you will, into utter foolishness and madness and immorality. Now, that answers a lot of big questions in life right there. Can anyone on this entire globe, no matter where they live, can they stand before God one day and use the excuse, God, I just didn't know you existed. All of us, every human being, says verse 20, is without excuse before God. There is no neutrality. That is a myth. There's not people who believe in God and people who don't believe in God and there's people kind of in the middle who are these truth seekers and they're just willing to follow wherever the evidence leads. God says the problem's not evidence. What they have around them in this creation is clearly perceived. They know God. They're suppressing the truth. That's the problem. So all of us, every human being, is without excuse before God. Verse 20. And the suppression of that truth in their minds, you do that long enough. Suppressing the God-given truth that he's there and that he's, we're accountable to him. That leads to all kinds of immorality, doesn't it? Like uh, worshiping creatures instead of the creator, it says. And they end up traveling down paths of sexually perverse behavior. Verses 26 and 27, women with women, men with men. It says committing shameless acts with one another. That's where we are in the world today, isn't it? That is exactly what happens when people suppress God's truth in their hearts and minds. God just gives them up. To sinful lusts. We have to remember the idea that God creates men and women with those kinds of perverse desires is false. God doesn't give men or women those kinds of desires, they are a product of sin. And so people. When people know God exists and they suppress it, God gives them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, says verse 24. And in verse 26 says again, God gave them up. And again in verse 28, God gave them up. So here we see this truth explained, okay? Here's the truth explained. When a society... This is all context for where we're working to, this justification, so bear with me. 
when a society abandons God, God abandons them. His abandonment, his giving them over to their sin is actually part of his wrath. Verse 18 said, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So part of that wrath actually involves God just giving them over to what they want. Or what we might say what we want. We're part of this fallen humanity. And you can read that progression through that section and this wrath of abandonment, I think, is what we see in the United States of America, don't you? We don't want God, and so he lets us have what we do want. He allows us to elect horrible leaders. He allows us to pass terrible laws. He allows us to go further into wickedness as a punishment to us. He takes away the restraint and just lets us go. Gives society what they want and then, I guess it hadn't happened yet, but eventually it will just implode. So we're living in a Romans 1 society. I'm sorry if that's discouraging to anyone, but I'm just reading what the scripture says. I hope you pray for our country. We need a revival from the Holy Spirit because nothing short of that will stop the ride around the toilet bowl that we're on. Now just remember, we're going through this to set up the context for understanding justification. So stay with me. In chapter 2, moving on. Chapter 2, Paul basically says, hey, fellow Jews... Remember how I said mankind is wicked? (laughs) How he just set up this? I'm talking about you too, Paul says. If you think having the law of God, just having it, makes you better than the Gentiles, he says, think again. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. So it's not the having the law, you got to keep it, right? And he goes on to tell them that their circumcision which is the outward sign of being in God's covenant community in the Old Testament, circumcision is useless if you just go on breaking the law that he gave you. Circumcision doesn't do anything for you. It actually condemns you because circumcision is only of value if you're obeying the law. And he says, real Jews, the real people of God, are those whose circumcision is a matter of the heart not just outward and physical. That's verses 29, or excuse me, 28 and 29. And then when we get to chapter 3 and verse 9, Paul really emphasizes again that all people are in need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's read there, Romans 3, 9 to 18. It says, by the way, before we read it, this section is probably... I don't know what your Bible looks like, how the font is or how the, the, the page looks, but it's probably indented a little bit right there or, or set off in some kind of way, paragraphed off, right? Um, that's because Paul is quoting from the Old Testament. 
And these are Old Testament passages that are set off in your Bible. Paul is just quoting from them. He quotes, to be specific, from some of the Psalms. And if you use your modern Bible, it's very helpful. It will have footnotes. It'll tell you what Psalm those are coming from. You can go back and look them up. It's very helpful. Let's read the passage, though. Romans 3, 9 to 18. It says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. This is the quote. As, when he says, as it is written, he's talking about in the Psalms here. None is righteous. No, not one. Not one understands. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. What a vivid description of fallen humanity, isn't it? Well, I believe uh, human beings are basically good at heart, someone says. That's not what Romans 3.10 says. There is none righteous, not even one person. Well, I believe human beings are just, we're just doing the best we can to try to find God and, and, and seek truth. That's not what Romans 3.11 says. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So let's not fool ourselves about humanity, right? Let's not fool ourselves about ourselves. We are severely broken, right? We are not good at heart. We are not seeking after God. No one is. And by the way, once you realize that, salvation is cast in the proper light because it's rightly viewed, salvation is, rightly viewed as God seeking you, not you seeking God. There's no one that seeks after God. And we need to hear these things because we need to know the truth about ourselves. We got to be honest with ourselves. Here's the truth from God's mouth. Before we can even understand what salvation is, before we can understand what justification is and how glorious this is, we got to understand something about ourselves. And he's just labored for three chapters to show us. And he says it's every person, Jews and Gentile. Now, follow along with me beginning at verse 21 of chapter 3, that is. He says, 
But now, that should perk our ears up, by the way, after all this that we've been hearing and reading, everything that Paul said up to this point. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You follow what Paul is saying here? In the context of the absolute fallenness and brokenness of mankind, God has revealed his righteousness. And he's revealed how we can be made righteous with him. How, can we, how we can be made righteous before him, rather. And he says... This isn't something new. It was foretold all along. Verse 21, the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Many of them missed it. Many of, many of the people at this time were missing what the prophets said, but they said it. Read Ezekiel, read Jeremiah, read Isaiah. It's all over the place about what the Messiah was going to do. But how is this righteousness actually received? Is it by following the law? Do you, do you follow the law and then God sees how righteous you are and then he says, okay, you've earned your right standing before me. No. It's apart from the law. Verse 22 says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And he said there, we read it a while ago, just like our sin is universal, everybody knows Romans 3.23, right? For all of sin comes short of the glory of God. Just like sin is universal, so the method of justification is universal. That's verse 24 that maybe we don't often memorize. This is how people are justified. Look at it with me, verse 24. He says it in multiple ways down through here, so we could really focus in on any one of these verses and spend time there, but over and over again, just look with me for now at verse 24. He says, by his grace, this is how people are justified, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, if we've gone this far, 
and you're still not clear on what justified means, let me just say it plainly. It means to be pronounced right with God. Okay? It's amazing, by the way, that people, when you think about it, people who are described in the way that verses 9 to 11 were just described, it is amazing that we can be justified at all, right? But this has been God's plan all along through Jesus' work on the cross. God, it said, God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood. That's a word we don't use around the dinner table, right? It's not in our normal language usage. But it means, propitiation means that God, he put Jesus forward to remove the impediments to a right relationship with God. He removed all the impediments out of the way that were between us and God so that we can have a right relationship with him. That's amazing. Why would God even want to do that? with the people who have no fear of him before their eyes, who see him very clearly and all the evidence around them, and yet they suppress the truth and won't give him glory. Rather, they say, eh, he's probably not out there. Suppressing the truth in their hearts. Worshiping other gods with a little G. What a testimony of God's love. This is, right? That God would justify this kind of people? Amazing. It's God's love on display. Moving forward still to verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Stop right there for just a second. <clears throat> Some people try to say that Paul was teaching something new in his writing, something that the other apostles didn't even believe. Other Christians didn't even believe this. That's not true. Look at what the text says. This is what other Christians accepted. He says in verse 28, For we hold... This is the standard of teaching in the Christian church. This wasn't anything new or novel by Paul. This is God's inspired truth that a person is justified by faith apart from works. Are you getting it so far? We're just going through the text of Scripture itself, hopefully seeing what it teaches about justification, how a person can be made right with God. Let's keep going. Paul doesn't stop there. <laughs> he gives us some examples from the Old Testament to reinforce this truth. Who would be someone his readers might respect or look up to from the past? How about Abraham, the patriarch of the faith, right? He shows that Abraham was justified by faith as well. Let's read Romans 4 verse 1 and following just a little bit. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, 
and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now that's another quote from the Old Testament. That's a quote from Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So is this doctrine of justification by faith alone, is it something new? No, it's how God justified Abraham way back. Abraham believed God, that's faith. And his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Let's keep reading, verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. What is Paul saying right there? He, he's saying that if it was our responsibility to actually earn our justification with God by works, would that be a gift? Or would that just be our wages, right? Imagine it's Christmas time, your boss calls you into his office, says, I got something for you, I've got a gift to give you. You're like, all right, I'm going to get a little bonus here. He hadn't done this before. He pulls out this envelope and he hands it, hands it to you, he says, go ahead and open it. You know, you're thinking, oh my goodness, how kind of you, sir, ma'am. A bonus? And you open it and it's just your paycheck for the past two weeks. Is that a gift? Not at all. It's just what he owes you. You earned it. You put in the work for it. Paul is saying that if our salvation is earned with good works, guess what? That's not grace. That's earning a wage. But Paul says that's not how salvation works. Here's how it works. You don't work to earn it. You just believe in Christ. You just trust him. And what he's done, you put your faith in him. Those are all kind of synonymous ideas. Trust, faith, believing. And this is very important. Look at verse 5, because I don't want you to miss it. It's important for our understanding of justification by faith alone. Verse 5 says, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the, what? Ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. Let me ask you something. If we earned our justification with good works, what would we be at the time of our justification? Would we be godly or ungodly? Think about it. If you were able to do enough good works to impress God and get Him to justify you, what would God be doing? He'd be justifying what kind of person? A godly person. You made yourself godly, and so he justified you. But that's not what he does. Why? Well, we got to start over again if we ask why. Remember chapter 3? Remember chapter 1? There aren't any righteous people. There aren't any people who can be godly. Not even one. So listen to that now. It's very important. Who is it that God justifies? He justifies the ungodly, the non-righteous person. Isn't that amazing? 
Does that cause something to stir in your heart at all? You don't have to impress God before he'll justify you. He justifies the ungodly. That should, uh, uh, that should shore up our own personal faith. And at the same time, it should increase, I think, our understanding of how to, to defend this doctrine. Justification is by faith alone, apart from works. We just see it over and over again in this, these chapters. If works had any part of it, God would be justifying the godly. God would be giving people their wage that they earned. But if he justifies the ungodly, well then justification is all of God's grace, right? In any system that uh, makes works any part of justification, whether it calls itself Christian or not, is distorting the grace of God. And when you begin to distort this doctrine, the very doctrine that tells us how we can be right with God, then you've lost the entire gospel. It's central. That's why Martin Luther says, church stands or falls on this article right here. This is essential doctrine. Now, Paul's not finished. Who else besides Abraham would these readers have respected? How about David? King David, he's the next example. Paul quotes from the Old Testament again. This time he quotes, you probably have it in your footnotes of your Bible. He quotes from Psalm 32. Follow along with me. This is Romans 4, 6 and following. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, and then he quotes... Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Listen to that again. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. I want you to think about this for a moment. Is that you? Are you the blessed man of Romans 4, 8? Or is God counting your sins against you? Is he counting your sins against you? Or has he already counted them against Christ? Think about that. Because what makes a difference in those two? is one thing, faith in Christ. That's it. Believing God, trusting in Christ's perfect, finished work. Now, since we're going to run out of time, I want you to skip down. If we keep going, we'll run out of time. Skip down to chapter 5. There's other things we could look at in chapter 4, by the way, about how the order of things that happened in Abraham's life is important. He was given circumcision as a sign of being in God's covenant family, but that was later in chapter 15 is when, of Genesis, chapter 15 of Genesis is when God justified Abraham. So he's actually justified, made right with God way before circumcision. And way before the law of Moses was even a thing. 
So Paul takes time. You ought to read it yourself. Paul takes time to show if it's law-keeping, if it's circumcision, he's kind of pointing his finger at his fellow Jews because they were very reliant on this. Abraham was justified before he had any of that that you're talking about. So the order there is important. We won't go into that today. Let's read Romans 5.1, though. This is the kind of as far as we'll go for today in Romans 5, or in our little flyover here. It says in verse 1 of chapter 5, Therefore, after all this, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Is there anything more valuable than peace with God? Would you take anything in exchange for peace with God? If you had a bazillion dollars, would you pay that money to have peace with God? If you could, you give everything you had to get peace with God, right? To flip it around the other way, if you had everything this world offers, fame, riches, earthly success, uh, if you had plenty of loving family and friends around you, you name it, whatever, and yet you don't have peace with your maker, that's not living. There is a dread to that kind of life if the person is thinking properly. There is a anxiety to that kind of life because when a person stands before God on judgment day, we all will realize how valuable peace with God is. Justification brings peace with God, but not just any kind of justification that we can come up with, only the true kind. Justification by faith alone. I'm pressing on this today because there are other systems of thought surrounding justification that doesn't bring peace at all. One is the Roman Catholic system. How many Roman Catholics do you know? Probably a lot. There's billions of Roman Catholics in the world. Some of you came from Roman Catholic background. Some of your family members are still Roman Catholics. I have Roman Catholic friends right now that I care for very deeply. And so the things that I say regarding... um, Roman Catholic doctrine is an attack on them. It is simply a loving act, I think, to point out errors that could lead someone to hell. I don't think it would be very loving to my Catholic friends if I didn't point out the unbiblical nature of Rome's doctrine of justification. And these aren't petty differences either. These aren't just things where you say, well, we can agree to disagree about that. This is about how you're made right with God. It's about whether or not you're justified or not. What is more vital than that, right? Rome teaches. Let this be a part of your equipping yourself to talk to Roman Catholics if it'll help you. Rome teaches that although we do need God's grace... To be saved. They wouldn't deny that. You need God's grace. 
And you need Christ's merit. But those things are actually not enough to complete the work. And they're not enough to preserve your status before God. It's actually the works of obedience to Him as defined by their tradition, not Scripture. That is what preserves and even improves your standing before God. Listen to these statements. These are from the Council of Trent. This is still taught today in official Roman Catholic teaching, okay? This hasn't been rescinded later or something. Canon number 24 says this, If anyone says that the justice received or the justification received is not preserved and also not increased before God through good works, but that those works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not the cause of the increase, they say, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. So anyone, if, if, if that language is kind of dense, let me just reword it a little bit. So basically, anyone who believes that the justification received, if they do not believe that it's preserved and increased even by good works, let him be cursed. And if anyone thinks that those good works are merely the fruit and signs of justification and not its actual increase, let them be accursed. That's what they say. Rome presents a justification that has to be maintained or improved upon by your individual good works. There's so many statements we can share. We don't have time. I'll share one more of these canons from the Council of Trent so you can see it Clearly. All this can be found on many Catholic websites if you're interested in reading some of the actual official teaching to, to better understand so you can better defend yourself, defend the faith. This is canon number 30. If anyone says that after the reception of the grace of justification, the guilt is so remitted and the debt of eternal punishment is so blotted out to every repentant sinner that no debt of temporal punishment remains to be discharged either in this world or in purgatory before the gates of heaven can be opened, let him be anathema. I'll reword that one a little bit too. So Rome says you're in error, you're cursed, if you think that when you are justified by God, if you think your guilt and your sin debt is gone eternally, you're accursed. In other words, do you realize what that amounts to? This is why it's not something we can just agree to disagree on. This amounts to saying Christ's work is not enough to save you. What you need to add to it is your good works and even if you do, you will probably never pay off your sin debt fully and you'll probably have to go to a place called purgatory to be purged of your remaining sin that you were not able to take care of. When your merit and Christ's merit 
and the merit of leftover saints who had extra merit, after all that is applied to your life, you still probably won't have paid for it all, so you need to go to purgatory. Purgatory is not taught in the Bible, by the way, but these are things that Rome teaches. And I think it's helpful to remember, especially on this day, Reformation Sunday, that the reformers were studying the scriptures and seeing that's not what the apostles are teaching. What the apostles are writing is not lining up with what my church in Rome is telling me. And God used these reformers mightily to recover the gospel of justification by faith alone, along with many other doctrines, by the way, that had been twisted over the years, like indulgences and so forth. Again, I'm not trying to be harsh on Roman Catholics as people. I'm more critiquing the doctrinal system, right? In order to love our Catholic friends, we've got to be able to point to Scripture and say without hesitation that the official teaching of Rome on justification does not line up with what the apostles are saying to what God is saying. And we should encourage them away from those things because that type of justification laid out by Rome is like hopping on a treadmill. It will damn your soul it will rob you of peace with God. Let me share a story. I'm almost done. Let me share a story that I heard from a man named James White. James White, some of you know him or know of him. He's the director of Alpha and Omega Ministries. You can find his material online. Super helpful stuff for defending your faith. He's a scholar. He's done many, many formal debates. He's a faithful brother, theologian. Many years ago, James White tells a story, he was debating a Roman Catholic man by the name of Father Mitch Paqua. He's an American Jesuit priest. And James White speaks very highly of Mr. Paqua as a person. He says he's an honorable man. He's honest. He's respectful. He doesn't engage like some people do in these cheap debating tricks, informal debates. And he and James White have debated, I believe he said, five different times throughout the years. And he says this man, Mitch Paqua, is a brilliant man. He speaks 12 languages, including Hebrew. And at one point in one of the debates, in one of the cross-examination portions of the debate, James White asked Mr. Paqua a question. And he asked basically what I asked you earlier because I got it from him. He asked, are you the blessed man of Romans 4.8? And he says at first he kind of got a, a little bit of a non-response, sort of sidestepping the question just a little bit, but, but White pressed in. He, he reworded the question and came back with it again. He said, how can you have peace with God when your own theology, the Roman Catholic theology, says that you could commit a mortal sin before your head hits the pillow tonight and you'll go to bed an enemy of God? 
And he says there was an awkward silence that seemed like forever in a formal debate when there's constant noise or constant talking when there's quiet. It's like, seems like forever. And he says, to his credit, Mitch Paqua, this well-educated Roman Catholic Jesuit priest with all his knowledge, with all of his Roman Catholic doctrine, in a moment of brutal honesty with himself and with everyone else, when asked, are you the blessed man of Romans 4.8? He said, I don't know. And that is the reality for Roman Catholics. That is the reality for our Roman Catholic friends. If justification sort of starts you out down the path of salvation, but what actually makes you right with God in the end is all those righteous works that you're going to hopefully do, that are supposed to come after that, how can you ever have peace with God? How can you ever know if you've done enough? You can't. It's a treadmill of uncertainty. And there is no way you could be the blessed man of Romans 4.8. Because, again, in Rome's system, your sin is very much counted against you. You could be justified and commit a mortal sin and your justification is gone. You got to do a bunch of other stuff to get it back. So is your sin not counted against you or counted against you? It's counted against you every time. No peace with God. So unless you have a perfect Savior who accomplished it all, and you simply just throw yourself on His mercy in repentance and faith, you can't know if you're right with God. If there's any sort of synergism where there's any sort of working together with God, if I work together and me and God are a team to earn my salvation, you, you just can't ever know. So why is um, justification by faith so important? Because faith is like this empty hand that fits into the hand of God's grace. And if you bring anything in this hand, it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit anymore. If you're holding on to anything, including your works, it doesn't fit. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law, Romans 3.28. I pray that if you're holding on to anything this morning, like your own worthiness, your own works, your own obedience to make you right with God, I just pray you'll abandon that false notion and just simply throw yourself on the mercy of Christ who has accomplished everything for your justification. He shed his blood on the cross to justify wicked sinners, not the ones who earn it for themselves, but the ungodly. It's the ungodly who become the blessed, happy man to whom God will not count his sin. We didn't have time to go into this today, but will good works follow justification? Yes, you bet they will. That's what James is talking about. In James 2. But do good works have anything to do with justification? Being made right with God? None. Justification is by faith alone. I hope this uh, 
little message maybe strengthen you this morning, cause you to love the Lord Jesus more, knowing what he did, knowing that his perfection is what saves us, not our works. Hopefully you'll know a little bit better how to defend this essential doctrine. Take them to Romans. If they're really interested, take them to Romans. Read Romans 1 to 5 again on your own. See how plain it is. And I hope that we'll always present the gospel with this doctrine in mind. It is not shape up so God will help you. It's you can't do anything for yourself. Look at yourself in Romans 1. Look at yourself in Romans 3. You're an ungodly person and so am I until Christ makes you his own. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you that over 500 years ago, you caused the reformers of the church to see what your word had clearly taught from the very beginning, that ungodly people are justified by your grace, and it's through faith alone, apart from any works that we do. I pray that if someone is here today who has maybe realized their lack of peace with God due to a misunderstanding of the teaching of Scripture or a misunderstanding due to a church system teaching them unbiblical things, I pray that you would cause them to see the truth and come running to Christ alone to get off the treadmill that's going nowhere and put their feet on solid ground and run to Christ. May they forsake any system that would want them to bring something in their hands to you. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Thank you for the truth of justification by faith alone. We just praise you for your mercy and your grace in Christ. And we pray in his name and for his glory. Amen.